Thanks for tuning in to the Heartland Message Podcast. Feel free to reach out with any questions and visit us online at weareheartland.us to find out more about all of our ministries and upcoming events. Well, good morning. morning. You ready to go? All right, we got a good one today. Uh, Actually, we're going to begin a new series today that's going to lead us through the season that has traditionally been thought of as the season of Lent, all the way up to Easter. Now, if you're new to Heartland, you might be wondering, do they do much with Lent here? And the answer is no. We don't do a whole lot with Lent at Heartland, simply because it's not something Jesus talked about. It's not something he asked his, his followers to do. In fact, Lent doesn't really become a formalized thing until something called the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, a few hundred years after Jesus. And yet, despite the fact that we don't formally practice Lent or do anything with Lent here at Heartland, I love the heart behind it. The idea behind Lent is pretty simple. The idea behind Lent is that you would take 40 days leading up to Easter and you would give something up. You would sacrifice something. You would fast from something. So sometimes people will fast in the 40 days leading up to Easter with uh, something as it relates to food. Sometimes people will give up uh, TV for 40 days. They'll give up, you know, coffee or alcohol. Uh, Most years for Lent, I give up and fast from exercise. And I just go... God, I am, I'm not going to get off the couch for 40 days. I'm just, I'm so committed. I love you, Lord. You know, this is for you. Um, but the idea is that it would be a sort of a somber, reflective 40 days leading up to Easter where we think about the pain of our lives. Like, that's the thought. The idea is that we would think about the sin that is in our lives and the sin that we're not capable of solving the problem of so that when we get to Easter, we then are able to celebrate the resurrection and the answer to our sin problem. It's 40 days long because that's how long Jesus fasted in the wilderness before he began his public ministry, and it starts on Ash Wednesday. So if on Wednesday of this week you saw people with the ash on their forehead in the shape of a cross, that's what was going on. At Heartland, while we don't formally do much with Lent, we are always very intentional with the teaching series that we're in for that period of time leading up to Easter. And this year, it's this series called simply, I Am. The short, short summary of what we're going to do in this series is that in the book of John in the New Testament, there are seven times when Jesus uses this phrase, I am, and then he fills in the blank afterwards with some type of metaphor to describe some aspect of his character. In this series, we're going to look at those seven things, taking one each week. And personally, I'm getting very excited as I study these seven things. I'm getting excited about this series because I think that, and I know that in this series, we're going to look at seven incredible attributes of Jesus. We're going to look at seven incredible passages of Scripture, some of which on the surface seem pretty complex or even confusing, but we're going to break them down kind of piece by piece and we're going to dig into them. And I love that in this series, for seven straight weeks, we are going to be unapologetically all about Jesus. For the next seven weeks, we are going to remember and be reminded and celebrate that Jesus is bold and courageous and exciting. He is somewhat offensive or controversial. And at the same time, we're going to be reminded that his love for the world was far-reaching and his grace never-ending. It is going to be a good series, and it begins right now. Now today, before we get into these seven statements in the book of John, we first need to understand a little bit more about the statement, I am, in and of itself. This statement, I am, is not like some other claim that people might make about themselves today. When the original hearers of Jesus' seven I am statements heard him say that phrase, it was a loaded 
statement. It was a loaded phrase, and it brought up all sorts of emotions and strong reactions, as we're going to see. Because the original people who heard Jesus utter those words, saying, I am, they could trace that phrase's history all the way back to their ancestors' time as slaves in Egypt. You might know that the Israelites spent over 400 years in slavery in Egypt, and God tapped a man named Moses and said, I'm going I'm to send you to lead my people out of slavery. And he said, Moses, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to the nation of Israel in Egypt, and I want you to tell them that I'm going to free them. And Moses, after he gets over the shock of all of this, is like, okay, well, when I go and I tell the Israelites, like, he said he will free you, like, who do I say sent me? And this is how God answers that question. This is how, this is the message that Moses delivers to the Israelites. It's recorded in Exodus chapter 3. And God said to Moses, here it is, I am who I am. How cool is that, right? I am who I am. He says, this is what you are to say to the Israelites, I am sent me to you. And so from this day forward, God to this group of people was known simply as the great I am. In the Greek language, the words are ego imi. And it's an incredibly deep title because it references both God's uniqueness and his timelessness. When God says, I am, he is declaring that there is none other like him, that he is self-sustaining and that he is superior to any and all others. It's also a statement that reflects God's timelessness. It, re it references or suggests a permanent existence which transcends time. It's the idea that God always was, always is, and always will be. That he and he alone is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And so for anyone else to claim this title, ego in me for themselves, would have been seen in this first century Jewish context as being incredibly blasphemous. Which is why the original people who heard Jesus use this title for himself reacted so strongly. Twice in John's gospel, he records Jesus taking this title for himself, Ego and Me, and both times he is careful to make sure he records and documents how people responded to this, to this claim by Jesus. Look at these two things. The first one's in John chapter 8, where Jesus gets into a conversation with a group of Pharisees about their ancestor Abraham. And of course, Abraham was one of their founding fathers. This is a, he's a big deal in the Jewish context, but Jesus is making the claim that he is greater than Abraham, and that he knew Abraham, and that he knew that Abraham long Longed for the coming of Jesus. And the people who heard Jesus say that in verse uh, John chapter 8 said, Jesus, you aren't even 50 years old. How can you say you have seen Abraham? And Jesus responds and he says, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was born, I am. This was so shocking. Look at how they respond, verse 59. At this, they picked up stones to stone him. Why would they want to take this man's life for claiming I am? They wanted to take his life because they understood Jesus was making the claim that he is God himself. That was a big deal. The other time that this happens where Jesus just outright says, I am, 
who I am, is at the end of his ministry when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's recorded in John chapter 18. Jesus and the 11 disciples at this point are there praying, and the temple guards are sent to arrest Jesus. And so when the temple guards come into the garden, Jesus sees them, and he approaches them, he meets them, and he asks them the question, who is it that you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. And Jesus said, I am he. Again, look at the detail that John gives us because he was there that night. Look at what he says happened in verse uh, 6. He says, when Jesus said, I am he, ego and me, they drew back and fell to the ground. When Jesus said these words, I am, they fell back to the ground. That's how much power was in this statement. That's how shocking this statement would have been to those listeners that day. I was trying to think of a modern day parallel that we might understand, like somebody making a statement like that that just shocks you and knocks you off your feet. And the closest I could think of would be if somebody came up to you today and said that the Chicago Bears are the greatest team in the NFL. You'd be like, oh, oh my, oh my goodness, what, what, what? You'd be like, what, what universe are we in? Is this a parallel universe? What, what century is it, right? It would just be so shocking. That's such, a, such an ignorant statement, right? I'm sorry, I apologize. You can like who you like, that's okay. Um, but, but here's the deal. So twice, two times in the book of John, Jesus claims the ego of me for himself. He describes who he is by simply saying, I am. That happens twice. Seven times in the book of John, John documents that Jesus tells us what he is by using ego and me as the beginning to a metaphor, by saying, I am this or I am that. And today, we're going to look at the very first time he ever does that, the very first time he ever utters the phrase, ego and me. Before we get into this passage, which we're going to look at in just a moment in John chapter 6, I want you to think for just a second about the difference between being full and being satisfied. Okay, think about the difference between being full and being satisfied for just a moment. Most of the time, you might assume that these two things go together, but they are different. And in fact, you do not necessarily have one with the other. You can be full and not be satisfied. I heard a pastor uh, ask the question one time, who is more satisfied, the man with a million dollars or the man with five kids? And the answer was the man with five kids because he doesn't want any more. Just... (laughs) totally satisfied, don't need more. The man with a million dollars, he's full, but he's probably not that satisfied. He could take some more, right? So, the, so, so you can be full but not be satisfied. Maybe some of you are like me and you understand the difference between being full and being satisfied intuitively because you recognize this happens to you pretty much every night when you eat dinner. All right, for me, dinner is my favorite meal of the day. Dinner is also the meal of the day when I eat the most food. That's probably not what the nutritionist would say is the ideal eating habits. But for me, I don't eat a lot during the day. And then I love to eat big, like hearty, sit down at the table with the, the full meal dinners. Like that's, I just love that. And so I am never as full as I am in the evening. I'm never as filled up as I am at the end of eating dinner. And yet, for me, personally, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's just something that God must have placed inside of me. It's just given to me from God. I can be stuffed, right? I'm totally full, but I'm not satisfied until I have a little what? Yeah, until I have a little dessert, right? It's like I'm not fully satisfied until I get like a, just something that'll like satisfy my sweet tooth. 
right? It doesn't even have to be big or fancy. Like it could just be a couple Oreos. It could be, um, you know, a little bowl of ice cream, maybe some chocolate, some of uh, Beth Patterson's fudge. Hint, if she's in the room right now, I'm looking around, is she here today, right? It's just something. Is anybody else like me, you, you need something to satisfy you at the end of a meal, something sweet? Yeah, okay, so you understand this. Now, what does this have to do with our faith, John? Well, this is where it connects to our faith. Just the same as you can be full but not be satisfied as it relates to food, it is also true of our life as a whole. You follow me? Just the same as you can be filled up but not satisfied as it relates to food. Your spirit, your life can be full but not satisfied. You can have a lot going on. Right? Your calendar could be full. You have places to go and people to see, work to do, house projects to complete, family to visit, vacations to go on, just generally a lot going on. But despite all the stuff and all the people and all the busyness and all the noise, you are not satisfied. You're not content. You don't feel at peace. You don't feel settled. In fact, you feel restless, wondering, wanting, Wishing for something more, not sure exactly what it is, but knowing in your heart there has to be something that you haven't yet found because you just don't feel satisfied. I'm not asking you to raise your hand in response to this question, but as we begin today, let me ask you as directly as I can, are you satisfied? As you think about your own life, don't answer out loud, but as you think about your own life and where you are in your life today, are you satisfied? Do you feel that sense of, of rest? Do you feel settled? Do you feel content? Do you have an overarching peace in your life? I'm not asking if everything is going well. You could have immense pain in this season of your life, but in the midst of that, do you have that overarching sense of peace? Are you satisfied? Because if you're not, I believe that in John chapter 6, when Jesus utters these words, ego and me, for the very first time, he was talking to you. We're going to dig into this passage in John 6 where Jesus has an enormous crowd of people around him. Literally thousands of people are around him. And as we walk through this passage in John chapter 6 together, what I want us to do is I want us to see ourselves in the crowd that day. And as we go through this extended, somewhat complex passage, I want us to pause along the way and I want us to make four simple acknowledgments about all of our own lives, about all of our own journeys. This conversation that we're going to dig into comes on the heels of the feeding of 5,000 families with two fish and five loaves of bread. As an aside, just sort of a fun fact, if you ever find yourself on like a really wild and crazy Friday night, like you're just, you know, living it up with a group of friends playing an intense game of Bible trivia, um, <laughs> my Friday nights, um, um, if you ever find yourself, there's only two miracles that all four gospel writers record. Kind of interesting. There's only two miracles that all four gospel writers record. The first is the resurrection, which makes sense. Seems like that's a good one for them to all four record. And then the second one is this one, the feeding of 5,000. But while all four gospel writers document the feeding of 5,000, John goes out of his way to make it clear that the crowd had their fill. 
What we're going to see is that they were full, but they were not satisfied. And so we read in John chapter 6 that after Jesus fed the crowd, he sent the disciples away in the boat. That night he went away to pray on his own, but the storm came up on the sea, and so Jesus walked on water out to him. This is the passage we looked at a few weeks ago. Well, the next day, this crowd that he has miraculously fed is hungry again, and they're looking for Jesus. And they're searching all over. We're told that they went searching for Jesus. And somebody says, hey, I think he went to the other side of the lake. And so they hightail it around. And when they finally find Jesus on the other side of the lake in Capernaum, they say, hey, Jesus, we were looking for you. We've been searching for you. And this is where we'll pick up the story in John chapter 6, beginning in verse 26. Jesus answered, You are looking for me, not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. You might think at first that Jesus would be excited to know that the crowd of people was searching for him, but apparently he was not. And the reason he was not excited about the crowd of people looking for him was because he knew that they were not looking for him because they wanted him in their life. He knew that in their search to be full, they wanted the food he could provide. This is where we'll pause and make the first acknowledgement, which is simply the fact that everyone searches. Most of the time, this is not a fun process, but it is true, everyone searches. It reminds me of a story that I've shared before about an older married couple who'd been married for like 50 years, and uh, they went to a Green Bay Packers game. And when the game was over, they were trying to leave the stadium in the you know, masses of thousands of people all trying to exit the stadium at the same time. And as they were leaving, the gentleman reached over and he took his wife by the hand. And she looked over at him and lovingly smiled and said, aw, you still love me. And he looked back at her confused and he said, that's not it. I don't want to go searching for you. Right? So everyone searches. We understand this, right? We don't really like the process of searching, but everyone searches, no matter who we are. You are hardwired to search and to be satisfied. You have a hunger, a craving, a need, and so we search. Trying to have our cravings satisfied is one of the most fundamental sensations we experience as human beings, and it begins quite literally the moment we're born. Within moments of taking their first breath, a baby begins to cry, looking for food. They hope that their cries will motivate someone to feed them. And so they search and they strain and they struggle until their hunger pangs are satisfied. As a child grows in an ideal situation, they get to go through a period of time where, where they really don't have a lot of worries. And it's kind of a sweet period in their life. If all of their needs are being met and they feel safe, kids are able to go to school and come home and play and just have fun. They're not really worried about too much in life. They're not really carrying any real burdens. They get to just be kids. It's a beautiful season of life, but it goes remarkably quickly. And then typically, once you hit the teenage years, you begin this process of searching Usually some point in your teenage years, you recognize, man, I'm going to graduate from high school in just a couple years, and you ask yourself the question, what am I going to do then? As we begin to wrestle with this question, what will I do with the rest of my life, we begin the process of searching. We know we want to do something that will make us happy. 
We know we want to do something that will provide the type of life for us that we all want to live, something that will make us feel at peace, feel happy and satisfied, and so we search. And that process of searching never really goes away. Even as grown adults, we're all hungry for something, and so we never really stop searching for that elusive thing that will bring us the feeling of being satisfied. This is the thing that Jesus was speaking into in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus said this. He said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they, they shall be satisfied. Well, that's great, but what does it mean to hunger and thirst for righteousness? Well, we'll get to that. The crowd was searching for Jesus, and when they find him, Jesus tells them, don't give your life trying to achieve or find food that won't satisfy. Give your life to to find food that will last for all of eternity. Of course, that statement leads to more questions. That's kind of confusing. And so in verse 28, we read that they then asked him more questions. They asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? And Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. They wanted to know, what do we have to do to get this this bread that will last forever? At this point, they don't understand that Jesus is no longer talking about physical, actual bread, actual food you eat. They think he's talking about food that would literally fill them up for all of eternity, but that's hard for them to believe. Of course it's hard for them to believe. Food that you eat once and you never get hungry again. And so again, they ask more questions. We read in the next verse that they asked him, what miraculous sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our forefathers ate manna in the desert, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus, if you want us to believe you, you have to give us more food, right? I mean, after all, he, talking about Moses, he gave our ancestors manna, bread in the desert, six days a week for 38 years. Jesus, if you want us to believe you, you're going to have to feed us more than one time. Again, they're trying to get full, which is the problem with chasing fullness. There's never enough. Verse 32, Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. It is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, from now on, give us this bread. This is a crowd of hungry people looking for satisfaction in food. The problem is they are looking to be satisfied by the wrong things which is the second thing that we have to be willing to acknowledge today about our own journeys, is simply the fact that everyone has tried to find satisfaction in things that cannot satisfy. This is a universal truth. We all look for satisfaction in things that can't ultimately satisfy us. And so often we look to be satisfied by things like our career, And we think thoughts like, maybe if I have a job that I love going to, then I'll finally feel satisfied. Maybe if I do more more meaningful work, then I'll feel satisfied. We search for satisfaction in our spouses, believing the old Jerry Maguire line, that you complete me. (laughs) Right? Well, marriage can be great. 
Marriage can be fantastic, but it never takes newlyweds very long to discover that marriage and your spouse cannot completely satisfy you. And when we don't find satisfaction in our marriages, we have kids. And we think, well, maybe if I have a child and that child looks at me like daddy or mommy or my my parent, right, then we will feel rested and at peace. Yeah, you're laughing. Listen, I don't even have to say anything, but if you think having a baby will make you feel rested and at peace, just come see me when the baby's like six months old, okay? Just come talk to me. I want to talk to you then, right? But we're hungry. We're searching. We're searching for more. We want more. We think we need more. We want more money. We want more stuff. We want, we want more vacations. We, we search for satisfaction in bigger homes and newer cars, maybe a boat, or maybe a cabin would do it. We search for satisfaction in upgrades and in experiences. That's what we're going after. That's what will satisfy me. I need an upgrade to this. I need an upgrade to that. I need a new experience. I want to experience something else. We don't want to be left out or left behind. We don't want to feel FOMO, that thing that my young hip friends tell me is the fear of missing out. But the truth is that none of those things can ultimately satisfy us, and this is nothing new. This process of searching to be satisfied with these things is not new to us or our generation or our culture. This is true of all people from every culture for all of time. This is the very thing that motivated the prophet Isaiah to write thousands of years ago in chapter 55 of of his text, why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Such a good question. Why do we spend money on what is not bread, metaphorically, and labor on what does not satisfy? Can we just have a moment of mass confession this morning to just to wake us all back up and get us on the same page? In just a second, can we get a show of hands? If you're willing to admit that at any point in your life you ever spent money on something that didn't satisfy you the way you hoped it would, or you labored to achieve or get something or get to some place thinking it would satisfy you, and it didn't ultimately satisfy you. Can I just get a show of hands if you've ever in your life spent money or done something? Yeah, just about everyone. The people who didn't raise their hand are almost asleep, so just let them be. (laughs) Just, they're real close. You know, this is a dark, quiet room. All right. So Jesus tells this crowd to pursue bread that will last for all of eternity. And they respond, sir, give us this bread. Verse 35. Here it is. This is our verse. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. And he who believes in me will never be thirsty again. I am, ego ami, the bread of life. You probably know that Jesus was born in the town of Bethlehem. What you may not know is that the word Bethlehem in the Hebrew literally translates as house of bread. And so here in this passage, just a little more Bible trivia for those of you who love to play. Uh, Here in this passage, we have the one who is from the house of bread now declaring himself to be the bread of life. 
And then Jesus continues the metaphor in the verses that come next, trying to drive home the point, his point, that the only way to be truly satisfied is to come to him. It's by consuming him, by living off of him and his words. I'll be honest, though, what he says next is a little bit confusing. In verse 48, he says, again, I am the bread of life. He reiterates it. And he says, I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate the manna in the desert, and yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread, third time he said it, that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. This crowd hears this, and they think that Jesus is now implying some type of weird cannibalism, like he's going to give his flesh, and they have to eat it to be satisfied. This is, of course, not at all what Jesus is referencing. He's foreshadowing his, his crucifixion. But the crowd is done. They've had enough. They've, they've heard his bold statement, his claim that he is the ego in me, and they're done. Verse 60 says, on hearing this, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? A couple verses later, we read that from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Now, just to be clear, we're not talking about the 12 inner circle disciples, but at this point, this is early on in his ministry, right? This is the first time he's made the claim that he is the, the great I am. At this point, he's got thousands of people following him, and we're told when Jesus says this, because they A, either didn't understand what he was saying, or B, understood what he was saying, but rejected this claim that the only way to be satisfied is by living off of Jesus alone, we're told many turned their backs and walked away. They were committed to finding satisfaction in other areas, destined to never find it. And this is the third acknowledgement we want to make today, simply that some never find satisfaction. This is one of the sad realities of life. I wish it wasn't the case, but it is true. There are people who never find ultimate satisfaction. There are people who probably come to your mind right now. People that you know lived a life searching for something but never ultimately finding it. Maybe they even went to their grave never being satisfied. That's tragic. And the reason it's tragic is because it doesn't have to happen. And what's really crazy about that happening is that so often, so many of them were full. They had the stuff. They had the opportunity. They had the people in their world. They had enough money, but they were not satisfied because they were looking to be satisfied by the wrong things. C.S. Lewis writes extensively about this in one of my favorite books. The book is titled Mere Christianity. If you're looking for a good book, I highly recommend it. But in this book, he talks about how there are three main ways that people try to navigate this struggle of feeling satisfied or not quite being satisfied. There are three main approaches people take. He's, he calls the first approach that people try the fool's way. And this is what he writes about the fool. He says the fool goes through all his life thinking that if only he tried another woman or went on a more expensive vacation, then this time he really would catch the mysterious something we are all after. Most of the bored, discontented, rich people in the world are of this type. 
They spend their whole lives trotting from woman to woman, from continent to continent, from hobby to hobby, always thinking that the latest is the real thing at last and are always disappointed. Maybe some of you have tried this approach, hopping from one thing to the next. He says the second way that people deal with the struggle of not being satisfied is what he calls the way of the disillusioned, sensible man. And he talks about how this person searches for a while, but never feeling fully satisfied, they finally give up and just decide it's not possible. They finally convince themselves that to feel fully satisfied would be sort of like chasing a rainbow. And so he writes that they settle down and they learn not to expect too much and they repress the part of themselves which used to believe you could find true contentment and satisfaction and they live quiet, sad, depressed lives. Maybe some of you find yourself in this spot today, convincing yourself that true satisfaction is simply not possible. The third approach is what C.S. Lewis calls the Christian way. And he writes that the Christian says, the Christian says creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. A person feels sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. Are you following him? Here, what he's saying is that all of our natural instinctive desires exist within us because we were made to have those desires satisfied. He's making the claim that there is no healthy desire in any of us for which there is not an appropriate solution. Every appropriate desire we have can be satisfied. And he continues writing, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it. They were meant to only arouse it, to suggest the real thing. Your desire to not be, you know, dissatisfied, your desire to be satisfied was put there by God himself because that is a desire he wants to meet in you. He wants you to be satisfied. God doesn't want you to go through life struggling with feeling empty or alone. He doesn't want you to feel like you're going through life searching for some elusive thing that just has constantly escaped you, looking to be filled up. He wants to fill you up. He wants to satisfy you. He invites you to come to him, to sit at his table, to dine on him and on his word, and to know the deep satisfaction that comes from doing so. This is what we hear in baptism testimonies every single year as people write generally the same testimony. I was searching. I was not satisfied, but I I am not searching any longer because I have found true satisfaction in Jesus. After the crowd turns and walks away from Jesus, Jesus turns to the 12 and he asks them the question, you do not want to leave too, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. 
the disciples had found eternal life. They had found the Holy One of God. They had experienced the satisfaction of their deepest desires. And so for them, no matter how unpopular Jesus would get with the masses, no matter how angry the religious leaders would get with him, they weren't going anywhere else because they had found satisfaction to their deepest desire and they knew that they had found it only in him. They knew that what he said was true, that he really is the bread of life. And that leads to our fourth and final acknowledgement today. It is the fact that complete satisfaction is found in Jesus. Discovering true satisfaction in Jesus is one of the great, if not the greatest discovery we can ever make in our lives. The disciples had discovered it. But they weren't alone. They were not the first to discover it. In fact, the the psalmist wrote long before them the discovery that he had made. In Psalm 42, we read that as the deer pants for water, the psalmist said, So my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. The psalmist had discovered it before the disciples. St. Augustine discovered it after them. St. Augustine said this. He said, thou, talking about God, thou hast made us for thyself. And our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. How beautiful is that? The psalmist had discovered it. The disciples had discovered it. St. Augustine had discovered it. So many in this room have discovered it. And I hope that if you have not yet discovered it, I hope that you will soon. I hope that you feel the hunger. I hope you can taste the thirst. I hope that that hunger pang never goes away. And I hope you never give up hope of filling that that desire and having it be satisfied. I hope you never settle into the disillusioned, sensible way of just saying it's like chasing the rainbow. There is no hope of being satisfied. And I hope that someday you have your desire met in Jesus himself. Earlier this week, I had the opportunity to watch a movie with a group of friends that kind of talked about how short this one lifetime we live is. And as I watched this movie, I went to bed late that night and I just laid in my bed thinking about how there are not many things that I believe so strongly that I could like guarantee it. I wish that there were more. But as I laid in bed that night, I thought there is, this is one thing that I can guarantee you. I feel like I can guarantee you there will be a million things that will come along in your life that will promise you satisfaction that in fact cannot ever truly satisfy you. They just can't. As great as career advancement is, as great as family and friends are, As nice as it would be to have all the money to buy all the nice, beautiful things, none of those things can completely satisfy you. There is only one. There is only one that can completely satisfy you, and it is Jesus. Jesus will satisfy you in the most complete way. He will satisfy your soul in ways that you will not understand, that you cannot fully grasp until you experience it firsthand. But he will be there for you when others leave. He will support you when you are weak. He will lift you up when you fall down. He will find you when you are lost. He will offer you peace in the midst of chaos. 
He will forgive you faster, hold you closer, know you better, come more quickly, and he will love you more purely than anything else in this lifetime will love you. And when you finally embrace that truth and decide once and for all that you are going to give him your life and follow him without any conditions, you will quietly wonder to yourself why you waited so long. It is that good. He is the bread of life. And if you've been searching... You do not have to search any longer because as Jesus said, he is the bread of life and all you have to do is believe in him. You just say to God, God, I believe in you. I believe in the one that you sent. I believe that he laid down his life to bridge the gap between me and you. And Lord, I give you my life with no conditions, with no strings attached. Lord, I believe in you. Now fill me up. And when you do that, you get to experience what the psalmist said when he wrote all those years ago, taste and see that the Lord is good. It's that simple. It really is. Let me pray for you. Lord, you have placed a desire to be satisfied in all of us. And despite the fact that we try so many other things, Lord, ultimately nothing can satisfy but you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to wrestle with that truth this week. Lord, I pray for anyone who is in this room and is not satisfied. I pray that they would not give up hope. And, Lord, ultimately I pray that they would come to your table and find that true satisfaction in you, the bread of life. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, and everyone who agreed said, amen. Have a great rest of your Sunday, everybody. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to this Heartland message. Join us on the weekends for one of our services on Saturdays at 4.30 and on Sundays at 9 and 10.45 a.m.